and a happy new year, right? Happy holidays, all of those things. It's, it's, this, it's this time of year again, this holiday season. And I want to, is, is it just me or have you noticed that trees and decorations are going up, seem to be going up earlier this year than years past? I don't know if it's just me, but it's really caught my attention this year. And I'm asking myself, uh, is this a, a visible kind of large-scale clue that we are longing for joy and wonder and beauty and slowness more intensely this year than in years past? I'm, I, I don't have an answer to that question, but I'm certainly asking the question. It seems like there's a longing in us for slowness and joy and beauty and wonder in this season. There's something for me about this pace of life, um, the flood of images and the flood of information that just taps out my own ability to take it all in. It almost feels like, for me, a race through a windy neighborhood at 80 miles an hour. It's like there's far more, far more going past me than I can actually get my eyes on and take in and see. It, it feels impossible in some ways to focus my attention because I'm traveling from one thing to the next so quickly. And sure, for me and for our family, this has been a busy, a busy season, you know, transitioning into this building, working on this event that's coming up. It's Christmas. I've got four young kids, and, and, and so Meredith and I do. And so it's a busy season normally, um, but I don't think I'm alone in this. Am I the only one? You guys feeling the pace? It's tapping on our reserves. I'm not typically a person who, who values um, traditions like Christmas and Easter. Now, let me clarify what I mean. I love Christmas, and I love Easter, and I love, I, I get theologically what they represent and what they mean, but it's, it can be pretty easy for me to live in the Scrooge mindset. Far, it's far more easy for me to live in the Scrooge mindset than it is the Santa Claus mindset. But this season, it's got me, so traditions, like I, I love the fact that Jesus has come and taken on flesh and that he's risen from the grave, which we celebrate at Easter, and, and, but all of the trappings and the decoration and the pace and the, all that stuff, just it wears my introverted self out. Now, uh, what, what I'm thinking about, though, in this season is I'm, too, longing for joy and wonder and beauty and this Christmas season has me thinking a lot about those things, and, and, and I'm looking for them because it almost feels like I've, lo I've lost sight of them in some ways. Like I'm having a hard time grasping and living in joy. Anybody else? Today is the first Sunday of Advent, like Jeremy said, and Advent is this great cultural and calendar opportunity for us to reset. And so I want to ask this question, what if, we, what if we choose, what if you and I choose to reset by going back to the basics, by choosing to remember that it is a miracle that God has come to his people? This is a miracle that God has come to his people. How he has come is a miracle, and the fact that God has come to us is also miraculous. People do not typically embrace rebels or give their last names to their son's killers in order to call them new family. This is miraculous. This is what our Bibles teach us about God. 
This is what our Bibles teach us about who he is. He is radically and drastically so different from you and I in miraculously good ways that when you and I consider the good news of Jesus, it has got to shape my attitude or I question whether or not I believe it. Does what he has done for me, for us, is that shaping us? Is that shaping our attitudes with one another, how we're treating one another? Is it shaping the way that we're approaching this season? Advent is, uh, it's from a 12th century Latin word, adventus or adventus, which means arrival. I, my kids are in classical school and they're learning Latin. And so I called my 10-year-old daughter, Elise, over last night. I'm like, hey, how do I pronounce this word? It looks like Adventus. And she's like, no, it's Adwintus. Is that right, Gideon? Adwintus? That's right. So the V apparently is a W in Latin. But this word means arrival. Adventus means arrival. The season of Advent is all about the first arrival of Jesus, and it's all about the second arrival of Jesus. This is a season of waiting. And both his initial coming and his second coming, his promised return, they are promised to us according to the Scriptures. And that's what I I want you to hear this morning, that this is promised to us. His birth and also his return are promised according to the Scriptures. Another word that we use often in this season and that we'll use each week in this series during Advent is the word incarnation. It's a Latin theology word that's from the 14th century. And the word is incarne. It literally means in flesh. And so Advent and incarnation are both words that seek to describe how God has taken our humanity, he's taken on humanity, and he has added it to his deity. Jesus is God, and Jesus has always been God, but Jesus has not always been man. God took on humanity at the birth of Jesus. He added this to who he was. John Murray, a a Scottish theologian, he, he writes like this. It's precise and a little bit confusing, but listen to this. The doctrine of the incarnation is vitiated or spoiled. The doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus is spoiled if it is conceived of as the beginning to be of the person of Christ. It's spoiled if we conceive it as his beginning. The incarnation means that he who never began to be in his specific identity as son of God began to be what he eternally was not. In other words, Jesus has eternally been God the son. Jesus has not been eternally human. God became human. He came to us becoming human in the birth of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I want us to see that this development in human history, this um, fact of God becoming human was foretold in the scriptures. I want us to see that. I want us to wrestle with that. I want us to recognize that potentially in some new ways, that this is not an out-of-the-blue development. Jesus coming and being born of his mother Mary. Over the next month, we'll see that this incarnation, his in-flesh is God's plan and has been God's plan for our salvation and for our adoption as children of God in this age. And so here is the big idea this morning that I just want you to hang on to. The joy of this Christmas is Jesus. The joy of every Christmas is Jesus. 
This is our joy. He is our joy. Our joy is not in events and gifts and seasons. Our joy is in a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. And so, church, believer, disciple, when you are rushed over the next month, when you find yourself losing perspective, maybe things are happening to you that, is out, that are out of your control, and they're crushing you and pressing you, and you are tempted to lose perspective, or maybe there's an internal rush and desire and pressure within you that is causing you to lose perspective. I want you to remember this phrase, please. The joy of this Christmas is Jesus. The joy of our Christmas is Jesus. So let's get into the scriptures together. I want us to read, to go to Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7 this morning. It's on page 915 of the Black Bibles around you. If you just want to beeline there, we're going to pick it up right in the middle of one of Paul's thoughts. And then we're going to work this text into our heads, into our hearts, and into our hands. And I'll give us some context here in a moment. But this is Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. It starts with the word but. So he's been saying something here. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is God's word to us. Father, would you open our eyes to see it? Would we see the person and the work and the beauty and the wonder of Jesus Christ who has really lived for us, died for us, been raised from the grave for our sake, who reigns and rules over all things right now and who promises us that he will come and set all things right, make all of the sad things come untrue. Holy Spirit, would you fill us to see it? Would you give us eyes to see what the scriptures teach so that we might believe and be transformed? We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. I've got uh, three just pretty broad points this morning for us. Um, and they're going to go like this. I'll just give you a quick roadmap. The incarnation, the incarnation of Jesus shows us that God is consistent. The second point is the incarnation of Jesus shows us that God is purposeful. And the third point is the incarnation of Jesus shows us that God is generous. And we're going to find this in this text right here. So let's start in chapter 4, first words right here, opening phrase. But when the fullness of time had come. The but here in this phrase means that God was waiting for something. The context of Paul's letter to the Galatian church, this church in Galatia, is all about how Jesus introduced this new covenant era. And so God in Christ is in the new covenant relating to his people in a different and in a more expansive way. There's this old covenant, this old covenant law. It came from God through Moses to the people of Israel, and it depended on a location and a land. It depended on the temple, and it depended on the sacrificial system. 
And it has been in this new covenant area fulfilled by Jesus. And so Jesus at his birth and through his life and death and resurrection is introducing to humanity, to us, a new covenant that relates to him in a different way. It relates to him as the new temple. It relates to Jesus as the once for all sacrifice for sins. And it's through faith in Christ as our sacrifice and our substitute, that you and I are able to be justified and have peace with God, and it is God who makes us holy. And Paul is talking about this all through Galatians chapter 3 and chapter 4. And so he said, when he says, but when the fullness of time has come, it means at the right time in human history, when the law of Moses had finally run its course and served its purpose, God sent forth his son. Now, I, will not do all, I, won't, I won't do justice to all of the ways that God's law functioned in the life of Israel, but if you give me just a few moments, I want to be concise here. I want to, I want to just show a few things that the law of Moses did. Number one, it gave Israel, it gave this nation among the nations a rule of life that governed and distinguished them from the other nations on the face of the earth. It made them incredibly distinct. Israel knew that they were different than every other nation around them, and every other nation around them knew that they were different from those nations. It was supposed to be that way. This is why it is such a big deal in the Old Testament as the Israelites are continuing to go to the nations around them, worshiping in their ways and their gods and their forms, that God is continually calling them back. He's continually disciplining them, bringing consequences, and also so satisfying them as they do come back to him. So number one, the, the, the law of Moses gave this, the society of Israel a rule of life. Number two, the law, and, and this is a mouthful here, but the law contrasted the holiness and perfection of God with or against humanity's sin and fallenness and foolishness and need of rescue, and it prepared God's people to be made holy by God. So the law is often summarized in three ways. The Old Testament law, the moral law, the civil law that governed how they lived and worked in relationships, but also the ceremonial law. And so the moral standards of the law, and this is not exhaustive by any stretch, it's, it's probably too simplistic, but the moral standards of the law prioritized mercy and uprightness and goodness. The civil standards of the law prioritized justice and prioritized order and equity in their society. And the ceremonial standards of the law prioritized cleanliness, preparation, and anticipation of being made holy by God. The law of Moses did not make people holy. The law of Moses prepared the people to be made holy by God. This is what the book of Leviticus is all about. The people are preparing themselves to come to the day of atonement whereby they are made holy by God. So the law gave people uh, a rule of life that, that made them distinct. It contrasted the holiness and perfection of God against our own sinfulness and prepared us to be made holy. And then third, the law prepared humanity for the incarnation. 
It prepared humanity for the coming of Jesus and for the proclamation of the gospel. The gospel is a word that means good news. And so the law actually created anticipation among the people of Israel throughout generations of a better sacrifice for our sins. Sometimes I am impatient. If you know me, if you've, if you've had any time with me, you'll recognize that I am impatient. And if I get moments with you, I'm going to recognize that you too are impatient, right? Many of us, that's a key quality or a flaw of humanity is our lack of patience. The default human posture definitely is not patience, is it? It's not patience in on Black Friday, you know. One thing that I'm recognizing in a fresh way through this passage is the importance of process. Just how important process is. And, and in the, just in the word process, it, it, there's connotation here of patience being required. So I, uh, for Thanksgiving, we typically are wanting to do something a little different than turkey on Thanksgiving. And so I slow smoked a tri-tip. Longmire, thank you for that recipe. I love it. Absolutely love it. Um, takes about six hours. But in this process of smoking this cut of meat, you've got to give it a lot of time to come up to temperature. Why? So the collagens and so the fats liquefy. And there's process in all of this. There there is um, process that you just cannot hurry in all kinds of everyday ordinary activities, from fixing a car to painting a room to writing and playing a song. So much is about preparation. You have to do things in order, and we have to do things over time. And even the simplest outcomes, like painting a room, it takes time, right? You don't just run in and throw paint at the walls and the doors and the doorknobs and the light switches and the trim and the floors. You have to mask things off. You have to prepare the room to take the paint. You have to mix it and prepare your brushes. And, and you've got to game plan it, all of that, right? So when you start to think about what it takes for humanity to become ready for the incarnation of Jesus and the proclamation of the good news in his name, this is definitely going to take humanity some time. Show of hands real quick. How many of you love admitting when you're wrong? It was like one hand and somebody else put up another person's hand. It's like, they're, 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 we do not love admitting when we're wrong, do we? Not at all. It takes time to get there, doesn't it? For you and I to come to a place where we admit where we're wrong, where we can admit we're wrong, it takes time. There's process to that. On a global scale, God is doing something profound through the generations of humanity to prepare us for his son. And so we in passages like this, but when the fullness of time have, has when the fullness of time had come, we can often get godlike in our um, posture and we say things like you should have been quicker. Why why are you taking all this time? Why all these generations? Why all these stories of heartache and people going astray? But while we're known for our impatience, God is known for the virtue of his patience. 
and he's known for the virtue of his providence. All things come to pass in his time. The Apostle Peter, who is one of Jesus' key disciples, he writes to a struggling church. He says, friends, do not overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. And then he goes on to answer maybe a question that they were asking or something that they were asserting. He says, the Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but rather he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. The Psalms are full, and Isaiah is full of how long, O Lord, how long, O Lord. There's this consistent and constant waiting in the Old Testament. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his own son. This tells us that the process is ready. Throughout the ages, God sent his prophets to declare to Israel and to the nations around them. Think Jonah, you know, going to to Nineveh. These prophets are declaring, behold, the Lord says. But in Christ, in Christ Jesus, the Lord himself is the messenger coming to the people of Israel saying, behold, I say, behold, I say. Humanity desperately needed rescue and desperately needed redemption. And yet, instead of delegating, think about this. God himself took responsibility for our condition and provided the means for our renewal and our salvation. Our default is to pass blame. Our default, my default, is to say it was their fault if that hadn't happened, if this circumstance hadn't been the way that it was. But God's default is to take responsibility even when he isn't responsible. Thank Jesus that he takes responsibility for you and I. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman. This portion here that Paul is is raising up for us to see and for the Galatians to see, it's about fulfillment of a promise from way, way back in the early pages of our Bibles. Remember, God is consistent. The first mention of good news after things go really dark in Genesis chapter 3 is Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. Theologians call this the proto, which means first, evangelion, which means good news. So this is the first whisper of good news in our Bibles. And God makes this promise actually to Satan as he's about to curse him, to this serpent in the garden as he is about to curse him. But it's within earshot of Adam and Eve. God promises Satan that through Eve's offspring and through her lineage, a capital D deliverer would come who would crush Satan and his works and the effects of those works, and this deliverer would restore order, and this deliverer would be human. This deliverer would be offspring of Eve through her line. The scriptures call this person her seed. Later in the New Testament, after Christ has come and lived and died and and risen, and the the Apostle Paul is out traveling the new world or the, 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 the known world at that time, planting churches, making disciples, he writes to this church in Philippi, and he says this to them, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be exploited But instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant and taking on the likeness or the image of humanity. 
And when he had come as a man, as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And for this reason, Jesus' humble submission, God the Father highly exalted him and gave him the name that is, that, it, that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the offspring of Eve and fully human. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law. Jesus here is an Israelite. He's a Hebrew. He's born to faithful worshipers of Yahweh in the first century. He was raised according to the law or to the Torah. He was circumcised according to Jewish custom and according to the law on the eighth day. He was dedicated in the temple as a child. He learned the Torah and he observed Sabbath. He observed regular Sabbath worship on Saturdays. He was the Jew of the Jews who through his obedience and his perfection became known to us as the king of the Jews and the king over all creation. And so in every way imaginable, Jesus is the model Israelite worshiper who came with purpose. So God is consistent. He has been doing something over time. As hard as it is for you and I to recognize that, he has been work, that God has been working over time to set up just the right moment when he would bring forward his son and usher in this new covenant era, he is consistent according to the scriptures. I want you to see that and look for that and lunge for that and yearn for that in your Bibles. Look for the ways that God is consistent. The incarnation shows his consistency the, the incarnation also shows, this is my second point, that God is purposeful. Jesus came to redeem us so that we can trust him and we can trust his benefits. Now, many, many people distrust the God of the Bible. Why? Because those who, who represent him have fallen notoriously short. So many of us find that we distrust God because of what we have experienced through the hands of men and women. And there are cases, as you read the scriptures, as we read the Old Testament, where God's ways are confusing and God's ways are disturbing to our modern sensibilities. But as you pay attention to the record of God in the scriptures, one thing the scriptures teach and proclaim consistently is that you really get a sense of just of the justness of God, of his mercy. His compassion is evident all over the scriptures. His patience with a, a, a just straying people, um, horribly flawed people, to be frank. His patience is overwhelming. And so from the opening portions of Scripture all the way through our New Testaments to the closing pages, God declares who he is, and who he is is consistent over and over and over again and purposeful as well. Um, I think of Exodus chapter 34, 6 and 8, 6 through 8, where God is declaring his identity, who he is to Moses, because Moses says, can I see you? And God says, you can't see me. That's going to crush you if you put your, hand, put your eyes on this kind of glory, but I will tell you who I am. And this is what the Lord, this is how the Lord describes himself, how Yahweh describes himself to Moses. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, a God who is slow to anger, a God who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, a God who is keeping 
Look at the present tense. Keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations here. That's what's in view. Thousands of generations. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Do you see the contrast? His faithfulness and his compassion are poured out to thousands of generations. And his wrath is poured out to the third and fourth. He is a God who longs to draw in and renew and restore. He is not capricious. And upon hearing this, Moses, the text tells us that Moses bowed his head quickly toward the earth and worshiped. These kinds of descriptions of Yahweh are consistent all the way through the Old Testament and into our New Testaments. I think of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul's writing to the church, people who have been rescued by the mercy of God in Christ. And he says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And then he says, by grace, you have been saved. Or Peter writing to a struggling, exiled church. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So we see that in the record of the scriptures that God is purposeful. He came on purpose as our advocate to free us from our sin, to liberate us from the requirements of the law of Moses, and to gift us the benefits of sonship. So, I just want to take a moment here, and I I want to just address you in the room. If you doubt the heart of God toward you, if, if this is just where you find yourself, it's a consistent struggle. Maybe it's new to you, but you are doubting the heart, the heart of God toward you. I want you to know, and I want you to see, and I want you to look and lunge. The scriptures everywhere are shouting that he is for you and that he is not against you, that he is for your renewal, that he is for reconciliation. He is drawing you. He is speaking to you. And so I'm just pleading with you, please entrust yourself to the God who is merciful and who cares for you. Entrust yourself to him. Hear his voice right now, even speaking to you inwardly, saying, you are mine. Do not doubt. The incarnation shows us that God is consistent. The incarnation shows us that God is purposeful. And the incarnation shows us also that God is generous. There are benefits to our sonship. Verses 6 and 7 here. Uh, Sonship can be confusing to modern people like us. I'll be simple, but what Paul is getting at here is far-reaching and extraordinary. Sonship does not mean that women become men. Not at all. It's not what's in view here. In our maleness and our femaleness, God will glorify us in our human bodies. He will give glory to our human bodies when we see him face to face. But what Paul is saying here to the Galatians and to us is that when we entrust ourselves to him for our redemption, we, you and I, become children of God, male and female, who possess rights to all of the family wealth. 
the creator of everyone and everything. We become heirs of his because of his generous action on our behalf. And so the imagery that Paul uses in verses 6 and 7 of Galatians 4 here is adoption. He says, and because you, so he, he sent his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that, that's a purpose clause. Why? Why did he send Jesus? So that you and I might receive adoption as sons. That's where it gets confusing for us from a gendered perspective. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The imagery that Paul is drawing on here is the imagery of adoption. And there is incredible, uh, there's, there's an incredible reality in this image. In human adoption, parents go seeking children who do not have functional parents caring for them in that moment for a purpose. Parents go seeking parentless children in order to make them family. And so these former strangers, upon meeting, they become intimate housemates. And mom and dad give these children all that they need as daughters and sons. When mom and dad die, the kids are their heirs, receiving everything and all that belong to mom and dad. What, God, what, what Paul is saying, what God, the Spirit is saying through Paul in this text is that God has given us his Spirit who is searing this reality into our souls. The Holy Spirit is confirming for you and I on a regular basis that we are family. But here is, here's, here's a, a problem in our human experience. Sometimes in adoptive realities, there can be a difficult hurdle to overcome. And the difficult hurdle to overcome is for these true adopted children to believe that they are true children of mom and dad. And so no matter how much mom and dad assure them, the true child who has been adopted can resist. No. No matter how much the assurance comes, no, I just, I don't don't feel it right now. I don't believe it right now. And the same reality is true for us as adopted children of God. We find ourselves resisting. We can find ourselves believing that this is true for other people, but not necessarily for me, that I have truly been adopted and not just adopted, but sealed. I have the last name. I am an heir to all that the Father has and has given to me and promises me. And so however much you and I struggle to believe a thing, it actually has no bearing on whether or not that thing is true. You and I struggle all the time to believe that we are forgiven, and our struggle to believe that we are forgiven has no actual bearing on whether or not that forgiveness is our reality. And you and I may struggle to believe that we are adopted sons and daughters into the family of God, legitimate heirs, but our struggle to believe this has no actual bearing on whether or not this reality is true for us. 
C.S. Lewis has this famous quote. He says, a man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. I think we should edit this in this text and in this case to say a man can no more diminish the reality of his adoption by struggling to trust, to trust that it's true, than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. Disciples have been given an heir's freedom. And here's where we'll end this morning. There is incredible slavery in insisting that we are alone and do not belong to God. Incredible slavery as we insist that this is for other people but not necessarily for us. There is perhaps nothing as soul-crushing and soul-suffocating than to believe that we are alone, that we're on our own, that he cares about the affairs of other people's lives but not necessarily ours. God, in his glorious and good way, does not leave us alone. God has come for the person in your seat. God in Christ has come for the person in your clothes. God in Christ has come for the person with your soul to renew it and to draw you to him and to assure you over and over and over again that he is yours and you are his. He has come in Christ for the real you, the messy and undone and unkept you, the struggling to believe you. For the joy of forgiving humanity, for the joy of making enemies his friends and family, Jesus has endured a criminal's death and a cruel execution. For the joy of adopting his killers and making us his family, Jesus has laid down his life in our place. And for the joy of assuring you and I that he never bluffs, He has sealed us as his sons and daughters forever by giving us his spirit who preaches the life and the death and the resurrection and the return of Jesus to our souls daily. He has not left us on his own, on our own. As proof, he has given to us his spirit who the scriptures say seals us for the day of redemption. And the Spirit of God is the one who continues to make sin distasteful for you. Even when you insist on, and I insist on living in it for a little while, it always gets a little bitter and goes down bitter. We always end up, as children of God, rejecting it. He is faithful to to complete in us what he has begun in us. And so Jesus gives this promise to his disciples And to us, because we are disciples, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. I have spoken these things to you while I remain with you. But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, who the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I have told you. He says, my peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I don't give to you as the world gives. And he says, don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. You have heard me tell you that I am going away and I am coming to you. The second advent 
This is the promise of the second advent, his return. Jesus ends in John 14 by saying, If you loved me, you would rejoice that I am going to the Father, because the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you may believe. In the incarnation, God is consistent with the scriptures. We can trust the biblical record. In the incarnation, God is purposeful. Jesus has come to us that we may receive redemption. And in the, in, in the incarnation, God is generous to us. That we receive his blessing and his benefits. And so this Christmas season, may we remember the ways that God is consistent with us, purposeful to us, and generous to us. And in this Christmas season, may we remember that our joy is Jesus Christ. Father, would you... Uh, Help us to believe. Would you help me to believe this? Because it's, it's easier to, to get up and proclaim it with a microphone in my hand and eyes on me than it is to believe in the everyday realities when I'm frustrated or impatient or I've sinned against people or they've sinned against me. So would the joy of Jesus permeate me through your spirit who you have given to me and would the joy of Jesus permeate those of us who are entrusting ourselves to you this morning. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us in ways that are loud, in ways that are clear and would you remind us that you are the reason that we have a month like this to remember your first coming to wonder at the scriptures of the miraculous nature of your birth? Would you remind us continually that you have not left us, that you will return to us and for us? Assure us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.